So I wonder if you've ever noticed how the ambush is a really powerful weapon. It's, uh, it, it can do a lot. Um, if you know where your enemy is going to be at any one time, you can lie in wait for them. You know, uh, uh, they're going along their normal procedures and you can get ready to pounce. When their defences are down, when they are least expecting it, you can launch a shock offensive. Um, military history is full of ambushes and I was going to bring you uh, one of those this morning and then the godly stuff kind of pushed it out so you don't get a history lesson. Uh, Taylor life is full of ambushes. You can't wander around my house without some sort of ambush happening and we learned when we went on various walks over the Christmas period that you can't take children out for a walk without them planning at least a couple of ambushes in Tilgate Park or Buckham Park or Sisbury Ring uh, and uh, hoping to surprise you and scare you. And uh, this morning we hear of God planning an ambush. If you've got a Bible, well done. If you haven't got a Bible, where on earth do you think you are that you don't need a Bible? So Exodus chapter 8. I'm fine with digital ones, or uh, if you've got the original papyrus, you're welcome to go through those. Uh, I've just got a humble book. Um, so turn to Exodus chapter 8. It says this in verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river classic ambush territory and say to him this is what the Lord says let my people go so that they may worship me if you do not let my people go I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials on your people and into your houses the houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies even the ground will be covered with them it seems it was usual for the king of Egypt to go down to the Nile early in the morning and as Pharaoh perhaps went to bathe or go for a swim, Moses was to lie in wait for him. And he was going to force another encounter. It is easy to imagine Pharaoh telling the bouncers at the doors of his uh, palace, do not let this uh, guy in again. I am fed up of Moses and Aaron coming in, bringing me bad news and uh, being prophets of plagues and so just saying keep him out of my life but Moses uh, doesn't get to do that God sends Moses uh, to lie in wait for Pharaoh and right there as we expect he announces bad news he announces swarms of flying insects I tell you after the swarm of lice last week I'm kind of grateful for flies I don't know about you how you feel about the different plagues but I'm at the moment still feeling the lice is the worst one but we've got these uh, uh, swarms of flying insects and apparently there were sort of mixed types and his highness the king Pharaoh of Egypt. He wants a quiet life. He just wants to get on with ruling his kingdom. But the reality is that his desire for a quiet life is going to be rudely interrupted because important things need to be said. Important decisions need to be made. Pharaoh needs to let these Israelites go. 
And there is nothing new in this. God is forever ambushing us. Isn't he, Baz? Forever ambushing us. We think we're going on at a nice steady pace, doing what he wants, and then suddenly everything changes. And our comfortable places are interrupted with things that we neither asked for nor expected. The, uh, there's a great story in, um, in this series of books by Francine Rivers, and it tells us of the story of Ruth, and it says this, sort of inspired by the Bible. Naomi looked at her daughters-in-law sleeping nearby. How strange they were her only consolation now. These young women she'd grieved over when she'd heard about them. Foreign wives, the shame of Israel. Oh, how she despaired. Yet she managed to put on a smiling face when Marlon brought Ruth home and Killian bought opera. What else could she do? She could not bring herself to risk losing the love of her sons. And she'd hoped to have some small influence upon these young wives. But now they were widows like her, and as dear to her as if they had come from her own womb. Nothing brings people closer together than shared suffering. She remembered in the beginning she had accepted them and tried to build the relationship, and with each of them in order to keep the peace in her house. And secretly, she'd prayed that Ruth's and Orpah's hearts would be softened toward the God of Israel. If she could teach them about the Lord, perhaps there would be hope for the next generation. But with her sons gone, the hope of the next generation was lost forever. And so we hear the story of Naomi and the grieving that she went through. Naomi felt utterly undone. The marriage of her son should have been a joyful thing, but it led to pain and then further pain. And then they died. It's easy to imagine her suffering and that feeling of suffocation where everything's going wrong. That plan and roadmap for the future is suddenly completely decimated. To say Naomi was ambushed by circumstances would seem to be an understatement. But there is light there. And that's why the book is preserved in our Bibles. The story reminds us that even though Naomi suffered all of this, there was light, there was God's plan, there was provision and purpose. Her, her daughter-in-law Ruth would end up trusting in God. This Gentile would end up believing in Yahweh, the God of the Exodus that we were reading about. And ultimately, and beautifully, and wonderfully, this lady that Naomi did not want for her son would be grafted in to Jesus' family tree. It's an incredible ambush. It's an incredible wider purpose. And each of us, I'm afraid, will experience divine ambushes in our lives. And we will feel all manner of emotions as it comes. All manner of, why, Lord, don't you understand? This isn't what I want. How could this be good? 
But the truth is that safe, quiet and orderly are rarely the paths to revelation, rescue and maturity. I feel that this morning. Safety, quietness and orderliness are rarely the path to revelation, rescue and maturity. We may long to simply relax in the river, but God would send his waves, his winds and his currents to move us. I came across this as I was looking for illustrations and I've kind of tagged it in but I like it and it says uh, a pastor I know recalls a Sunday morning Bible study at his church when the text under consideration was Genesis 22 God commands Abraham to take his son Isaac and offer him in sacrifice on Mount Moriah after the group read the passage the pastor offered some historical background that's good on this period in salvation history excellent terms including the prevalence of child sacrifice among the Canaanites the group listened in awkward silence and then the pastor asked but what does the story mean to us and I love this a middle-aged man spoke up and said I tell you what the meaning has for me I've decided that me and my family are looking for another church the pastor was astonished what why because the man said when I look at that God, the God of Abraham, I feel I'm near a real God, not the sort of dignified, business-like, conservative God that we chatter about here on Sunday mornings. Abraham's God <laughs> could blow a man to bits, give and then take a child, ask for everything from a person, then want more. I want to know that God. The child of God knows that the graced life calls him, no, him or her to live on a cold and windy mountain, not on the flattened plain of reasonable middle-of-the-road religion. For the heart of the gospel of grace, the sky darkens, the wind howls, a young man walks up another Mariah in obedience to God who demands everything and stops at nothing. Unlike Abraham, he carries a cross on his back rather than sticks to the fire. Like Abraham, listening to a wild and restless God who will have his way with us no matter what the cost. This is the God of the gospel of grace. A God who out of love for us sent the only son he ever had. Wrapped in our skin, he learned how to walk, stumbled and fell, cried for milk, sweated blood in the night, was lashed with a whip and showered with spit, was fixed to a cross and died whispering forgiveness on us all. I wonder if you've noticed in the stories of these plagues that they follow a pattern. Each time there is a pattern, there are similarities. We find Moses hears from God, not all at once, but bit by bit. And then he comes and challenges Pharaoh and Pharaoh doesn't particularly like what he has to say. And then calamity comes and then Pharaoh brings relief by calling on God 
And then Pharaoh refuses the freedom. It happens time and time and time again. And by using this formula, the particular bits stand out, particular bits that aren't in the other plagues. And this morning, we have another such bit. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 8 again. It says this in Exodus chapter 8, verse 22, carrying on from where we read earlier. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen. Everyone say Goshen. The land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction. Everyone say distinction. Distinction. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. Egypt would be terrorised by flies, but an area called Goshen would be uh, exempt from it. It would escape this plague. What is so special about Goshen? Was it the posh district? Was it the wealthy district where, it, where, uh, uh, where the bin men turn up on time? No. It is the place of the slaves. It is the, uh, uh, the slums. This is where the slaves inhabit. This is where the lowest of the low scum of the earth live. The Egyptians are confident in their wealth and they can look at these Jews and they consider them inferior. They consider them just tools to be used, people to build their monuments to their gods. And the plague that comes punches in the mouth this understanding. The Egyptians are able to worship God in abundance. They have sacrifices and monuments and statues galore. And all of that is undone by a God whose people are what? They are penniless, poor, they are ignorant, caged, and uh, they have no power. And we have him here in this highlighting of Goshen, the kingdom of God. You see, Israel's salvation at this moment is a teaching lesson for Pharaoh. Pharaoh needs to understand that God is not impressed by bigness. He is not impressed by wealth. He is not impressed by cleverness or influence or power. His is an upside-down kingdom. Yahweh teaches Pharaoh that the conventional rules that he lives by are turned upside down and on their head. They are topsy-turvy. This is the kingdom of undeserved grace. This is the kingdom where you don't get what you deserve. This is the kingdom where the weak and the poor become rich and strong. It is a brutal manifestation, a real Old Testament illustration of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he said the meek will inherit the earth, when the poor would become rich, when the weak become strong. I want to read you these great words from Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
for this upside down kingdom. In the kingdom of God, everything is different from every other kingdom. For God says in effect, the kingdom of his is not like that which you have always known. Everything you've ever learned is rubbish. Everything anyone has ever taught you is nonsense when it comes to the kingdom of God. The first thing we have to realise is that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Everyone say new creature. New creature. He is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Everyone say passed away. away. They're passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If only we'd realised, as we should, that here we are in a realm in which everything is different. The whole foundation is different. It has nothing to do with the principles of your old life. You know those principles? Forget them. Kick them out of here. Remember them not. We have to work this out in detail. But first, let me underline this again. This new principle. We must say to ourselves every day of our lives. Everyone say every day. Every day day you've got to say this. What have you got to say? Lloyd-Jones will tell you. Now I am a Christian, and because I am a Christian, I am in the kingdom of God, and all my thinking has got to be different. All my thinking has got to be different. Everything here is different. I must not bring with me those old ideas, those old moods and concepts of thought. All the people around us that don't know Jesus They're living in an old kingdom. It has no future. There is no prospect for them. They may look like they're being successful, but in the end they will run aground. They will be shipwrecked. There is no future for them. I must not bring with me those old ideas, those old moods and concepts of thought. We tend to confine salvation to one thing, namely forgiveness. But we have to apply the principle throughout the Christian life. This morning Goshen, this slum, this area on the outskirts of Egypt, this place that the Egyptians would look down their nose at, is a reminder of this kingdom of God that is upside down, this kingdom of God that was brought in by Jesus' death and resurrection. All the rules have changed. Pharaoh's rule is passing away. This idea that the rich and famous and powerful have got it all, that is nonsense. We live in a new kingdom and it is coming soon. This morning, there is an opportunity to live in this new kingdom, to think differently to everyone around you, to not be like your neighbour, to not rise to the things those co-workers rise to, to not get angry about what the papers get angry about, what your neighbours get angry about, what uh, people at work and your friends and neighbours get angry about. I was with a conversation uh, during the week with someone and the anger they had about the wildest things. It was just incredible that I'd suddenly uh, uncorked a genie and there was just all this frustration coming through. That's not our kingdom. Ours is one of grace and love and power and it is coming. None of us are frustrated because we know our future is assured and so we get to love 
in accordance with that. We get to love extravagantly because we know we will never use it up. We will get to serve without counting the cost because we're not our strength, the Lord is our strength. Can I have an amen for that? Some of you are nodding and uh, I like every now and again a little vocal assistance. Got a Bible, turn to the very last bit of the passage in Exodus 8. says this in Exodus 8 verse, I'm going to skip a few verses, please excuse me, uh, and go to verse 28. Pharaoh said, okay, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but, but you must not go very far and, and you must pray for me. And Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh, your highness, be sure that you don't act deceitfully again. Those in power lying, eh? Who would have thought it? <laughs> Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord and the Lord did what Moses asked and the flies left Pharaoh and his officials and the people. Not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not let the people go. Pharaoh is frustrated and annoyed and helpless in front of the flies. And so he concedes, you know what, I need the help of your God. And he tries this negotiation tactic, classic immature approach. God, if you do this, uh, I would like this to happen. You know, that sort of old bargaining routine. Now, if I'd have been Moses, I would have got a little irate at Pharaoh that he thought he was in that position. But Moses, bless him, he's a gentle soul. Um, and instead of rebu rebuking Pharaoh, he just reasons with him and uh, gets on. However, there is this wonderful moment where he goes, just, just don't be deceitful, don't be a liar. La uh, Pharaoh, don't let your pants be on fire. And Moses prays, doesn't he? And the plague dramatically stops. And sure enough, the king, the ruler of the country, lies and refuses the freedom he promised. He backtracks. Moses is as good as his word and Pharaoh is the liar we all knew he was. I don't know whether you've noticed, but we live in a time and a place where truth is very much negotiable. Adverts mislead. Those beers I drink haven't made me rich and famous, like they all said. The politicians that promised me a bigger, better, richer country hasn't quite come about. And the language suddenly is everyone has their own truth. You know, whatever's true for you may be true for you, but it's not true for me. And whatever's true for me, me may not be true for you. We all have our own personalised little universes where we are kings. And truth has become a subjective reality. And we've reduced the word truth to whatever we feel like and whatever we want. But the thing is, 
Truth is not negotiable. It is not up for grabs. You cannot have your truth and I have mine and then being contradictory. Truth is truth. If something's true for me, it'll be true for you. Truth is a characteristic, a consistency in the Father, Spirit and Son. And we are required. It is our privilege to perpetuate that. We are to be truthful with everyone else. It is inconvenient to speak clearly and truthfully. It is hard work. People don't thank us for saying the truth so often, regardless of the situation, saying, I think that is morally wrong. I think you have failed people in that assessment. And let me tell you, as we acquire wealth, and we in the West are kind of uh, in the richest sort of 10% of, uh, of the globe, as we acquire wealth and influence, as we acquire standing in the world even, you have more to lose. And the temptation to lie becomes more powerful. That's the why the ones at the top are so tempted to lie, because they have everything to lose. And they want to maintain that at any cost, even at the cost of the truth. And we learn, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you've learned to argue how up is down. I don't know if you've ever come across, you're reasoning well with yourself, you know something is wrong, but you're trying to justify it to yourself. And you go, yeah, really up is down and down is up. Like, don't come to me with your moralising. But if people can't believe us about small things, how can we ever discuss the truth of the gospel? How can we ever prophesy to them if we illustrate no awareness of truth whatsoever? And this is a little side note. Christians are really good at elevating to the rank of truth things that are nothing of the sort. It's just a little aside note. You do not have permission to say whatever you feel on any subject just because you're a Christian. Okay? You have to be sensitive to the people you are talking to. Sometimes it's okay to treat other people as sentient human beings who God loves and to think of how your words will be received. God is really gracious with you. If you were, uh, if God pointed out to you all the things that you needed to sort out in your life right now, you would just uh, give up tools and go home. You'd be like, oh, it's hopeless, I can't do that. It's impossible, God. And God is gentle and quiet and leads you and goes, well, we'll just deal with that right now. And then that, and perhaps later on we'll deal with that. He doesn't batter you over the head with truth like some sort of uh, uh, club. And we also, and this is a fascinating one in the last couple of years, we mustn't confuse opinion, politics, and even science with what we call God's truth. 
So science is just the best available data for today and the best explanations. Things change in science, so we need to be careful about elevating science to eternal truth. Your opinion on something, you are welcome to voice it. We're not going to shut you down, but you must be aware that that is not necessarily truth. And politics. Uh, since sort of Brexit, I've become opinionated about all manner of different politics I never had an opinion on before. But I don't confuse that with God's truth. Or I try not to anyway. Jesus is the truth. And we are called to share him and live in his reality, in his truth, all the days of our lives. Let me finish with a reading from Spurgeon. We have all heard the story of the man who preached so well and lived so badly that when he was in the pulpit, everyone said he ought never to come out again. And when he was out of it, they all declared he never ought to enter it again. From the imitation of such a Janus, may the Lord deliver us. We do not trust those persons who have two faces, nor will men believe in those whose verbal and practical testimonies are contradictory. As actions, according to the proverb, speak louder than words, so an ill life will effectually drown the voice of the most eloquent ministry. After all, our truest building must be performed with our hands. Our characters must be more persuasive than our speech. That's challenging, isn't it? Your character how people encounter you has got to be better than what you say. It is remarkable that the only church history we have is the Acts of the Apostles. The Holy Spirit has not preserved their sermons. They were very good ones. Better than we shall ever preach. But still the Holy Spirit has only taken care of their Acts. We have no books of the resolutions of the Apostles. When we hold our church meetings, we record our minutes and resolutions, but the Holy Spirit only puts down the acts. Our acts should be such as to bear recording, for recorded they will be. We must live as under the more immediate eye of God and as in the blaze of the great all-revealing day. Please stand and bow your heads. Heavenly Father, there are so many things in this. But Lord God, I just ask that you bring home to each person here this morning that which you would have them remember. Lord God, I pray if it is to embrace the ambushes, that we would do that. Lord God, I pray if it is all about remembering your back to front and upside down kingdom, that that would be treasured in our heart. And if it is that simple, timely reminder that we are to be truthful and honest and frank, that Lord God, you would cement that in our hearts. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.